The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. This morning we'll give attention to verses 19 through the end of the chapter, verse 31. Luke writes, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, or to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What's the word of the Lord for us this morning? Here at the end of Luke chapter 16, we find Jesus teaching another parable. We've seen him do this a number of times already during this season of his life in ministry. If you were to rewind back to the beginning of chapter 16, he uh, addressed a very similar parable, not similar in its details, but somewhat similar in its theme. He addressed the issue of wealth and its ability to corrupt. He's doing this because primarily the religious leaders to whom he's speaking in this particular section and in these particular parables were incredibly wealthy men who trusted in their wealth to save them. They saw their wealth as a sign of God's affirmation and God's favor on their lives, saw this as God's sign that what they were doing was right and what they were teaching was correct and how they were living was appropriate and godly. All of those things were absolutely false, but they believed it nonetheless. And Christ was, in these parables, trying to expose to them the foolishness of that kind of thinking, the foolishness of that kind of living. 
And he was trying to expose to their eyes the dreadful end to which that kind of a life leads. He was trying to show them where they were headed. As the chapter sort of unfolds and we get to this final parable in chapter 16, Jesus sort of ups the ante, if you will, in this area. And he speaks to them in a story that is vivid in its language, vivid in its details, shocking in a lot of ways. Really hard to even walk through and think through seriously. He tells a story about two fictional people. And if it was a movie, we would sort of get a a picture of what their life was like before death, and we get a picture of what their life is like after death. And the contrast couldn't be more real. It's a parable that gives us insight into the things that matter most in life and the things that matter most beyond this life. It's a parable that shows us life as it's lived by many. And it's a parable that gives us sort of unique glimpse, a unique glimpse, if you will, into what life is like on the other side. It's a parable about heaven and hell. It's a parable about people who go to one and the other. If you were to ask the people around you, the people that you know, the people in your neighborhood, maybe the people that you have an acquaintance with, particularly those outside of a local church, what their thoughts were on heaven and hell and whether they believed in those things. And then if you were to drill down and ask them questions about what it takes to get to one or the other and what sorts of people end up in those locations, you would find, I'm sure, all sorts of varied thoughts and varied opinions probably reflective of what was found in 2021, the most recent Pew Research Survey on these issues. Just a few highlights from that particular uh, survey that was taken in our nation. Of all U.S. adults, nearly three-quarters of Americans still believe in heaven. About 73% of Americans believe that heaven is real. Only about 62 believe that hell is real. That is 62%. 73% believe heaven is real. 62% believe hell is real. Those numbers really tend to decline every time one of these surveys is taken. We're now up to about 27% of the population that believes in neither heaven nor hell. So roughly one out of every four people that you meet does not believe that there is anything after this life. There is no heaven, there is no hell. When you begin to drill down among those who believe that there is a heaven and that believe that there is a hell and you begin to ask questions about what that looks like and what that means, the sort of the, the details become even a little more disturbing. When asked the question of people who say they believe in heaven and hell, do you believe people who don't believe in God will get into heaven? That's a fascinating question. Do you believe that people who don't believe in God, people who reject God, do you believe they will make it into heaven? Among U.S. adults who believe in heaven, 39% believe that people who reject God will get there. Only 32% believe that you cannot go there apart from a belief in God. 
if you begin to ask them, can who, who specifically of those who are going to get there, who believe in God, what particular God do they have to believe in? Are, 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 do, do many paths lead you there? Does it really matter which God you believe in? Or can you just believe in any God and follow any path through any religion and really sort of end up in the same place? About 44% of evangelical Protestants, now we're narrowing it down, not just people who, who believe in heaven, not just people who identify as Christians, but people who identify as evangelical Protestants. That would be at least the tribe to which we would find ourselves. Of those, about 44% say that many religions can lead to eternal life in heaven. Other findings in the survey tell us that about a third, about a third of adults in the U.S. believe in some sort of reincarnation. Suffice it to say, people are very confused about heaven and very confused about hell. People outside of the church are rather clueless, it seems, about these matters or just reject them uh, in, whole, in whole portion. Even within those who identify with Christianity in some way, shape, or form, Protestant, Catholic, there's incredible confusion. Even among those who identify as evangelical, Protestants don't seem to have it sorted out. It's a bit frightening because all of our, all of our souls and eventually our bodies reunited with our souls will spend eternity, the Bible declares, in one place or the other. And it's never seen any more vividly in the Bible than in the parable to which we'll look today. And yet... There are many who still deny the reality of heaven, and in particular, the reality of hell. If you're interested in more detail about that, just do a simple Google search. Is hell real? And just roll through some of the responses that you get. You'll be a little surprised, particularly by those coming out of the Christian world. For instance, just one quick example of that would be a, a writer by the name of Stephen Myers. Stephen Myers writes out of the United Church of God, and here's what he writes in his article about that issue, Is Hell Real? He says, did you know that early Christians did not believe in the idea of an ever-burning hell? It wasn't a teaching of Jesus or the Bible. He asked the question, will there be punishment for the wicked? Yes. Is there an ever-burning hellfire? No. Their punishment, that is, evildoers, is that they will quickly burn. Not an eternal torture, but in a merciful, quick penalty. Unrepentant, sinful people will not be tormented forever. Instead, they'll be totally burned up, destroyed, reduced to ashes. It may sound surprising to you, he writes, but that's what the Bible teaches. Those who willingly and willfully reject God's way of life will simply cease to exist. The wicked will be consumed by fire once, quickly, and then forgotten. It's fascinating to read what people like Stephen Myers and others do with the text to which we'll give our attention this morning. Because you have to do some pretty remarkable things with it to come to that conclusion. You certainly cannot take it at face value. 
But this morning, that's exactly how we're going to take it because that's exactly the way Jesus laid it out for the audience to which he spoke. He tells us a story about two people, and he gives us a glimpse of their life before death, and he gives us a glimpse of their life after death. And the contrast couldn't be more vivid, and the results couldn't have been more shocking to the audience that originally heard this particular parable for the first time. So we'll take it the way Jesus gave it, and we'll look at these two men at their life before death. We get that in the first couple of verses. We're told there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed from what fell from the rich man's table. Two people, the first man, were simply told one thing about him. And what is that? He was a rich man. That's the only real detail we're given about his life, that this particular man was a rich man. It is the, the one thing that he was clearly known for was his wealth. The most notable thing about this particular individual is that he was rich, he was wealthy, and it was well known. If you had mentioned his name uh, in the town square, uh, likely somebody would have said something along the lines of, oh, you mean that, that rich guy down the street in the big house? And they would have begun to describe for you all the signs of his wealth, maybe the, the chariot that he rode around in, the clothes that he wore that Jesus speaks of here, the way he carried himself, the things that he did, the places he went, the ways that he used his wealth. They'd tell you about all of his fancy things. He was known as a rich man. That was his identity. Now, we've already addressed this a bit earlier in the chapter, but we'll, it's worth noting again that biblically being rich isn't in itself an evil thing. In fact, there were a number of godly men in the Bible who were incredibly wealthy, namely people like Abraham and others who followed after him. Job, another. We see people in the New Testament also who are wealthy and their wealth was not indicated to be an evil thing. Wealth and riches, however, the Bible continuously tells us, do provide particular kinds of temptation. And often the kinds of temptation that wealth and riches bring into our world present to us very significant barriers to entering the kingdom of God. So you hear Jesus saying things like, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? You hear him say things like, the love of money is the root of all evil. You hear him say things like, you cannot serve God and what? Money. He says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. However, Whatever you think the eye of the needle is or what that means, it's hard. So this man is already sort of set against this context. He is a rich man. That's what he's known for. He's wealthy. And Jesus gives us a couple of clear evidences of his wealth here, primarily the way he dresses and his diet. We're told he wore purple clothes. Now, at first, that may not seem too remarkable to you. And to me, after all, in our culture, people wear purple purple all the time. I'm looking out and I'm seeing a little bit of purple this morning. I wish I had a purple shirt. I would have worn it. But you walk around, you see somebody wearing purple, and you don't really think anything of it, right? Other than you may think, oh, it's kind of tacky. Who wears purple? 
It's not that notable in our culture, except that it happens to be one of the two primary colors of college football's most elite program. But that's another, another thing altogether. If you lived in the first century, it'd be very different though, right? Purple clothing was extravagantly expensive. Extravagantly expensive. The only way to get purple clothing was to have it dyed by a particular dye that was known as Tyrian purple. It was a dye that was very, very rare, and it was very, very hard to produce. The Phoenicians sort of had a corner on the market of how to produce the dye and then how to dye clothing to make it turn out purple. It originated really in the city of Tyr, one of the Phoenician cities. Oddly enough, the way you went about doing this, or the way the Phoenicians went about doing this, was they extracted this dye from a very particular kind of shellfish, the Murex brandaris. I probably butchered the name of that, but that's what it looks like in front of you. Those little critters right there had something inside them that was purple. And the Phoenicians figured out a way to be able to harvest these shellfish and to crush them and to extract from them whatever goo was inside them that was purple and create a dye out of it. It was an incredibly labor-intensive process. It took three days to do. It took about 10,000 of those little, little critters there to be able to get one gram of dye. So you can imagine the work involved in that. And one gram of dye was really only enough to dye the hem of one garment purple. One historian said it this way. He said, Tyrian purple dye was literally worth more than its weight in gold. In fact, one pound of dyed wool that was dyed purple would cost you one pound of gold. So you understand how incredibly rare something purple was, and particularly purple clothing. So as a result of this, it was incredibly rare, incredibly extravagantly expensive, and so it wasn't unusual for people like kings to wear robes that were purple because they were the kinds of people who could afford purple dyed clothing. So when Jesus tells us that this man was a rich man, he's not saying to you and me, this guy just had a little bit of money or that he had a little bit extra. He was telling you and he's telling me that this man is extravagantly wealthy. He's extravagantly wealthy. He has garments, that the whole garment is purple and that's what he puts on display on his body. His wealth is extravagant and it's displayed in his purple clothing. If it wasn't enough that he wore purple outer garments, we're told that he wore fine linen inner garments, fine linen underwear, if you will. Fine linen was made in Egypt and also was extremely rare, extremely expensive. So when you look at this guy's fashion statement, it's not like my fashion or your fashion. Now, I'm not judging your fashion. I, you know, listen, I'm the worst person in the world to judge fashion. You could sort of summarize my whole fashion motif as Costco-esque. That's about it or Sam's Teak, something like that. I don't have much going in that category. Uh, you probably have a lot more than I do, but this guy right here, he put his wealth on display in the clothing that he wore. And that's notable. Not only his outer garments, but his undergarments as well. If it isn't enough that we learn about his dress, we learn about his diet, we're told that he feasted sumptuously every day. Every day was a lavish feast. 
this man didn't throw an occasional party. He didn't have an occasional celebration, an occasional buffet, like one of the parables we saw earlier, the parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember the father who killed the fattened calf and he, and he threw an extravagant big feast to celebrate a special occasion? This man doesn't operate like that. Every day is a special occasion for a lavish banquet. That was his norm. That was his regular. That was how he lived every single day. It's the picture of sort of over-the-top, ostentatious, wasteful spreads of food. Beyond all of that, we're told that he had a gate. Phil Riken says the Greek word used here refers to the kind of ornamental gate that one would have ordinarily found at the entrance of a palace. So he dresses extravagantly. He eats extravagantly. He's got a large home, maybe somewhere along the lines of a palace that has a, a large, massive ornamental gate. And the ornamental gate is there to, to lock him in and, in and to keep all the riffraff out. That's what gates do. When we look at the composite picture of this man, we're not just looking at somebody who's rich. We would use the terms filthy rich. This guy's got it all. Just like the Pharisees, though, this man was a lover of money. He used his wealth not to be a blessing to other people, not to expand the glory of God around the world, not to help those who were in need, not to use it as an expression of love for his neighbor and love for God. He used it really to display his wealth to impress other people. Just like the religious leaders, he used his wealth to, to gratify his own pleasures and his own desires daily. His wealth wasn't the problem. It wasn't the main problem, at least. The main problem was his hard heart that's displayed in a selfish lack of compassion for anybody else. And that's the picture of this man, this rich man. You contrast it with the other man in the picture, who's the opposite, isn't he? There's a rich man behind the gate, inside his wealthy home, eating his wealthy food, wearing his wealthy clothes. On the outside, we're told, of the gate is a poor man. The poor man's name is Lazarus. Lazarus. Oddly enough, his name means he whom God helps. He whom God helps. He's the only person in any of Jesus' parables, as far as I can tell, that Jesus gives a specific name to. He names him Lazarus. Which isn't, I don't think, you know, is it, it's not incidental, is it? He names him Lazarus. Lazarus means he whom God helps, or the one whom God helps. And yet when you look at this man's life before he dies, his name doesn't seem to match his circumstances, does it? He doesn't look from the outside like somebody whom God is helping. He looks from the outside like someone whom God has abandoned. No doubt Lazarus probably felt like that many, many days. The circumstances did not match his name. I remember one time a late night TV show host read uh, a lost and found uh, article from a Midwestern newspaper and it said this, lost dog, brown fur, some missing due to mange, blind in one eye, deaf, lame leg due to recent traffic accident, slightly arthritic, goes by the name of Lucky. Just like Lucky doesn't sound very lucky, Lazarus doesn't sound like one whom God helps especially as we see how he's described. We're told a few things about him only. We're told that he's covered 
and sores, some kind of open oozing sores from some kind of disease have afflicted this poor man. And because he's poor and destitute, he has no means for medical help or medical assistance or medication or ointment to try and soothe whatever is going on with him physically. He's just left in a condition of perpetual suffering with no relief. The only relief we're told that he seems to get is from the stray dogs that come and lick his sores. What a pathetic sight that is. It'd be pathetic in our own culture, but in their culture, dogs were not cute little pets that people kept at home. They were seen as a nuisance, kind of like rats are seen today. So to describe someone as being licked by dogs is about as low as you can get. He's covered in sores. We're told he's starving to death out there. He's dreaming about, he is just fantasizing about the crumbs that fall from this rich man's table. I mean, it's this fascinating contrast, right? On the inside of the gate is a guy who has a lavish banquet every single stinking day. On the outside is a man who is literally starving, dreaming about the garbage that man is going to throw away. And the indication is the rich man doesn't seem to give him any of that covered in sores he's starving he's late at the gate apparently he was in some way disabled the language here seems to indicate that somebody had laid him there not that he was moving back and forth to the location himself he was laid there to beg in one of two situations is where he probably found himself either someone had dumped him off there and just left him permanently Or there was somebody who was carrying him back and forth daily to that particular location for him to be able to sit outside and to beg. In either case, it's a pitiful, sad sort of a picture of a human being. And these two men couldn't be more opposite, could they? Rich, wealthy, fancy clothes, all the food you could want, extravagant home, extravagant clothing, extravagant food, just living large. And the other guy is destitute and dying and desperate in every single way. Lazarus didn't look like somebody that God was helping. I'm sure there were many days that Lazarus sat outside in his suffering and wondered about that. It's important to note, in order to understand the impact of the story, the prevailing theological belief of the day. The prevailing theological belief of first century Judaism was very, very specific. And they would have very much understood this parable in this way. They would have understood this rich man's wealth as a sign of God's approval and God's favor on his life. And they would have seen Lazarus' poor, suffering condition as a sign of God's disapproval and God's judgment. That is how rich people and poor suffering people were understood by the religious establishment of the day because that's what the religious leaders taught. That's why the rest of this story would have shocked them to no end. And it's because of that belief system that these religious leaders shunned suffering people. It's why they had nothing to do with people like Lazarus. It's why they walked on the other side of the road away from them. And it's why they were so livid with Jesus when he associated with them. What a contrast before death. But the contrast is just as vivid after death, isn't it? 
Because the, the camera follows these two men right through death to the other side, doesn't it? We're told in verse 22 and 3, the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. I mean, the conditions of these two people just flip-flops after death, doesn't it? The rich man who was locked inside his palace on the, out, on the, on the other side, after he dies, he finds himself on the outside looking in. We're told he, was, he died and he was buried. As it does for every single human being, death came to the rich man. Nothing about his wealth could insulate him from death, could it? His riches, his food, his clothes, none of those things could stop the inevitable. He, like every single human being, he died. He breathed his last breath, and his soul went out into eternity. He faced the cold, hard reality that every single human being faces, death. We're told that he died and was buried. A wealthy man like him, what do you think his funeral would have looked like? Small or large? Would have likely been large and ostentatious like everything else about him and everything else about his life. There would have been a big funeral. Everybody in town would have known this wealthy man. Everybody would have wanted to come out and mourn and pay homage to his life. They would have paid a bunch of mourners to come and weep and wail. It would have been a big ordeal. Lots of pomp. Lots of circumstances. It would have been big news in the town. Everybody would have known. He died and he was buried. Buried in a formal tomb of some sort, probably a ornate tomb for his family. But then we're told something else about this man. We're told that he ends up in torment in Hades. Now, Hades, here the word translated Hades, and Hades as it's used in the New Testament is a, a place for departed souls. Or you could say another way, it's the realm of the unbelieving dead. It's where unbelieving people go, their souls go, when they die. It's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word Sheol. It's never used of believers. It's only used of people who die in their unbelief. It is not the final hell that we see described in the book of Revelation. It is the place where unbelievers go, the souls of unbelievers go, until the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment. And we see from this particular man's story, as Jesus tells it, the one who understands fully how these things work, that his soul immediately goes to this place and awaits final judgment. But it isn't just a holding pen. It's a place of active torment. The misery of God's judgment is already a reality on this man's soul. It's clear from the story, isn't it? It's a place of torment. Because this man lived without God in his life, he's going to live without God in his afterlife. It's a sad picture. It gets sadder. But you contrast that with what happens to this man Lazarus, this poor beggar when he dies. His story is altogether different, isn't it? The man who was, uh, for his whole life, locked on the outside of everything, now finds himself where? On the inside. He finds himself on the inside. We're told he died. Again, Unlike the other man, nobody would have even noticed when Lazarus would have died. There would have been no funeral. There would have been no mourners. There would have been no friends to gather. There would have been nobody celebrating his life. There would have been no formal burial. There would have been no tomb for him to be buried in. 
His body would have simply been thrown in the garbage dump and burned with the rest of the trash. He would have been quickly forgotten. That's why we're told he died and nothing is said about a burial. He wouldn't have been buried. But that's the moment in which Lazarus' suffering ends, isn't it? Because we're told after that, immediately, he was escorted to Abraham's side. Fascinating. In life, this man was all alone. He had nobody to help him. But in the very moment when he dies, in the moment when he dies, immediately he has help. In his life, he had no help. He was by himself. The one who, proximity-wise, had all the means to help this man, and apparently he did not. It appears that the rich man went in and out of this gate all the time and saw this poor man and just kept about his business. But when Lazarus dies, immediately he has help. The moment Lazarus dies, his name becomes a reality. God helps him. God relieves his suffering. God sends angels to bring him home. What a fascinating picture that is. It's the only place in the Bible where the Bible indicates angels escorting a believer to heaven. It may be true that that's what happens. It may not be. It may be that just this is a parable and Jesus uses that as an illustration of the contrast between these two men. Either way, the picture is vivid, isn't it? He dies and the moment he dies, angels come to bring him to Abraham's side. Again, this phrase Abraham's side is only here in the Bible. We don't see it mentioned somewhere else. The only thing we really need to press from that is that he went to where Abraham was. Remember in parables, there's usually a main issue that's being communicated, sometimes a secondary issue, but we're not to press all the details into some sort of a fine uh, sort of application as though every single detail has a direct correlation. The issue here with mentioning Abraham's side is just simply to say that this man died and he went to the place where Abraham was. And every Jewish person knew where Abraham was. Abraham was where? He was with the Lord because he was the greatest, the father of the Israelites. All Jews looked to Abraham. All Jews took great pride in their descendant it's descendancy from Abraham. If anybody in their lineage made it to heaven, it was Abraham. And so we're told here that this man Lazarus immediately finds himself escorted to Abraham's side. He's in heaven. This again, like hell, is not the final state of heaven as we see described in the book of Revelation. It is the place where believers go immediately in the presence of the Lord, where their souls go immediately in the presence of the Lord to await the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. And the final state of heaven that follows. But just as the soul of the rich man was immediately in the torment of Hades, the soul of this poor Lazarus was already enjoying the bliss of heaven with Abraham. This would have been absolute. We cannot under, uh, undersell how shocking this would have been to the audience who heard it. Nobody in that culture would have thought that man, that poor suffering beggar, had any shot at getting into heaven. Never. His suffering, his pain, his physical condition 
his poverty, all of that was seen as God's judgment on his sin. And for God to judge somebody that severely, his sin had to be astronomical. He had no shot of getting to heaven. And yet Jesus says, here he is. The moment he dies at Abraham's side in heaven. And everybody would have thought the rich man in the story was a shoe-in for heaven. If anybody had a shot of getting here, that was the guy who was going to make it. Because his wealth and his extravagance and his easy life and his lack of suffering were clear signs that he lacked the judgment of God. That he was a holy man and God approved of his life and his belief. And so when Jesus says, here's what happens when they die. The rich man who you think is going to heaven ends up in hell. And the poor man who you think is going to hell ends up right next to Abraham, hanging out like they're buddies in heaven. Would have been absolutely shocking. To add insult to injury, the rich man is given a view of Lazarus and Abraham. And all of a sudden, the rich man becomes the beggar. We see that, right, in the story. While, while, while in life, Lazarus had spent much of his life begging, the rich man had never had to beg for a single thing in his entire life, had he? He had all of the resources at his disposal to take care of any particular need that he might have had. His wealth had insulated him from any kind of real needs. He never had to depend on anybody else's kindness. He never had to depend on somebody else's mercy. He certainly never had to even uh, really depend on God's kindness and God's mercy. In fact, all of his wealth was from God and was an expression of God's kindness. But this man never knew what it was like to go without a meal. He never knew what it was like to not have enough clothing to keep warm. He never knew what it was like to not have a place to lay his head and call home. He never knew what it was like to wonder where his provision for the next day was going to come from. He'd never had to depend on anything. He'd never had to ask or beg for anything. But after he dies, the tables turn. Now he has real needs, and there's nobody to meet them. Now he has to resort to begging. Now his only hope is the mercy and the kindness of somebody else. And tragically, as the story unfolds, we see that it's too late. That nobody can do anything to relieve this man's condition at this point. He's dead and his fate is sealed. But we're told in verse 24 through 26 that, that this man gets a glimpse of, of heaven. He can see from a distance where he is, and then he can see into heaven, and he can see Lazarus, and he can see Abraham. And he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in the flame. It's noticeable that he sees both Abraham and Lazarus, and he only speaks to whom? Well, to Abraham, he ignores Lazarus just like he did most of his life. He still seems to see Lazarus as the errand boy that can be sent to do his bidding. And what is it that he wants in his first sort of plea? He wants Abraham to send Lazarus with a dipped finger in water. What is he looking for and what is that, the picture there? Just some kind of temporary relief from his misery. Send Lazarus to give me some kind of relief. 
I'm in anguish in this flame. Well, his request is denied, isn't it? Abraham says, no way. Two reasons why I'm not doing that. Reason number one, you got all the good stuff that you were going to get when you were alive. In your life, you had everything that a man could ever want. You had all the blessings a human could accumulate, and you enjoyed them to the hilt. Everything you can expect from God, you've already gotten. And now it's too late. He was a man who had gained the world, but had lost his soul. He was a man who had forgotten to lay up for himself treasure in heaven. He was a man who had not used his wealth to make friends for eternity, like we saw earlier in chapter 16. Every blessing from the Lord he was going to ever get, he got it while he was alive. And now that he's dead, there's nothing to be given. The second reason that Abraham says no to the request is that no visitors are allowed in hell. He says there's a great chasm that's been fixed between where we are and where you are. And nobody from here is going there and nobody from there is coming here. And the picture is that once death takes place, there is no second chance. Souls go to one place or the other, and where you go is where you are, and there's no mobility between the two locations. It's impossible. God has fixed it in such a way that it cannot happen. Not for Lazarus, not for the rich man, not for Abraham, not for anybody. No, Lazarus isn't going to come and give you any relief. There is no relief for you. Nobody can Nobody can help you now. And then he says, well, if that's not going to work, he pivots to sort of another plea, a second plea in verse 27. He says, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. Again, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers so that he may warn them that they might also not come to this place of torment. All right, resigned to his own fate. If, if, if there's no help for me, maybe there's still help for my brothers. Send Lazarus to them. If he goes to them, send him back to warn them so that they won't end up where I am. He's desperately pleading that God would send Lazarus to give his family more revelation. And Abraham says to him in reply to that, your family has all the revelation that they need and your family has all the revelation they're gonna ever get. They have Moses and the prophets. They have everything they need to get where they need to get. They have everything they need to know who God is and to know who they are and to know what it takes to please him. They have everything that they need to know about heaven and hell and who goes where. They have everything they need to know about repentance and holiness. But this man seems to believe that, that the Bible isn't enough, that the Old Testament isn't enough, that the Moses and the prophets isn't enough. That he seems to believe that what people need is more than those things. God, Abraham, they won't believe just that. I didn't believe those things. I had Moses and the prophets, and I didn't pay any attention to any of that. And look where I am. My brothers are just like me. They need more. Send Lazarus. If they see this poor beggar come back to life from the dead, surely That'll get their attention and they'll believe. Verse 
His plea for more revelation, though, is it's met with a hard reality. The hard reality is those who reject the testimony of the Bible will not believe further testimony. They won't believe even if a miracle shows up. And that's what he says. Listen, if they reject Moses and the prophets, they won't believe it. Even if I send Lazarus back from the dead, they will not believe. The problem with your brothers is not that they don't have enough information. The problem with your brothers is the problem with you, and that's that you've rejected the information that you have. And the Old Testament is all the information they needed. If somebody rises from the dead, they still won't believe. Jesus has already illustrated this on a couple of occasions, hasn't he? Do you remember early on in Luke's gospel, back in chapter 7? Do you remember when Jesus came onto the scene and he was interacting with this, this man by the name of Jairus? And Jairus had a daughter who was dead. And what does Jesus do with that daughter? He brings her back to life from the dead, doesn't he? Luke chapter 8, verse 52 and following. Remember in chapter 7 of Luke's gospel when Jesus and his disciples are walking down the road and they come upon this funeral procession of this poor widow from the city of Nain. This poor widow who's lost her only son and is consigned to a life of hopeless poverty. And what does Jesus do? He walks up to her and his heart is moved with compassion and he says to her, don't weep. And he walks over to the to the to the stretcher that they're carrying this dead body of this boy on and he says get up and the boy comes back to life jesus has already raised two people from the dead and the religious leaders are very well informed about these two miracles and they are listening to this story and even those two people coming back from the dead has not swayed them to the truth they rejected moses and the prophets and even those dead people coming to life did not change their hard hearts the irony is that Jesus was going to do this twice more, wasn't he? Another guy named Lazarus is going to come to life after being dead and buried. And what are the religious leaders who are listening to this story going to do? Are they going to suddenly believe that he is the son of God who he's claimed all along when they see the miracle of this man walking out of a grave with his burial clothes still on? Are they going to believe? They will not. Their response to that is to plot to kill Lazarus and Jesus. And of course, Christ himself is going to rise from the grave. And what are these religious leaders going to do? They're going to conspire with the authorities to lie about it and to cover it up. And they're going to still refuse to believe. You reject what the Bible has to say about the truth, and there's no miracle in the world that will change the hardened heart. People have all the revelation they need. The problem is that people don't know, don't have the right information. The problem is people reject the information that they have. What a sad, sad story of this rich man, isn't it? Glorious picture for Lazarus. It gives hope to all who suffer, doesn't it? To all who suffer faithfully trusting in God, that the God, even though it doesn't look like he's helping in the moment of suffering, ultimately comes through, even if it's at the end of life, and he helps those who suffer, and he ushers them in to the presence of heaven. What are we to take away from all this? Our time is really up. 
Let me just give you some simple truths. Most of these are quite obvious and don't need much explanation, so I won't explore them. Simply to put them up there for you to see. These are things that are clear from this text. I don't know what you came in here believing about these matters, but these things are clear from this text. First, hell is real and many people will go there. That is clear in the Bible. It is clear in this particular text. There is no way to take this parable seriously and to come to any other conclusion. Chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, many. Matthew chapter 7 verse 22 he talks about the final judgment and he says on that day many will say to me Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name and I'll declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness hell is real and there are many people who will find their way there the Bible is not obscure on that issue Sort of as a corollary to that, many people who go there are going to be surprised to find themselves there. The rich man in this story was prototypical of that. He was a man who thought he was a shoe-in for heaven, and he wakes up at the moment of death in Hades, shocked that he is where he is. The whole parable is really, is really built to expose this truth. Everyone would have considered this man a lock. His wealth was a clear sign of God's approval, and like so many in the history of mankind, the religious leaders and the Jews of the first century did not understand saving faith. They didn't understand what it takes to get to eternal life. And many people in our culture don't, our culture don't have any, any clue either. There are people all around you and all around me who still believe that wealth and material blessing is a sign that God's with them, that God's good with their life and lifestyle, that God's good with their lack of faith, and their lack of holiness. There are many people in your culture and in mine, people that you know in your friendship circle and in mine, who still believe that if you just do more good things than bad things, then you'll make it into heaven. There are people that you know and people that I know that still believe that religious activity will get you into the kingdom of God. That if you just are religious enough and go to church enough and read your Bible enough and pray enough and do religious things, that you'll get to heaven. There are people all around you and people all around me who still believe that pursuing justice and peace in the world is what's going to get them into heaven. We still have people all around us, as the Pew survey showed us, that still believe that all paths, it doesn't matter which one you follow, just follow some religious path and you'll, you'll make it into heaven. And plenty of people still believe that you just cease to exist when you die. All of those people who embrace any of those thought processes or philosophies are going to be shocked one day when they wake up the moment of death and realize they're in Hades. That hell is real and they're there. Because apart from Christ, apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no salvation and there is no heaven. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what? No man, no one comes to the Father except through me. Everybody who convinces themselves that there is some other way into heaven is going to wake up shocked the moment they die because they will find themselves in Hades. Third, hell is a place of permanent conscious misery. 
It is clear from this story. The rich man knew where he was, and he knew where he wasn't. He knew what he was experiencing, and he had no means to get relief. Hell is not a place where you party with your unredeemed friends. It's a place of utter misery, the likes of which your imagination and mine can't even begin to fathom. Our worst nightmares can't even conceive the reality of that place. You deny it to your own peril. That's what this rich man did. A couple other quick things. Wealth and poverty tell us nothing about the condition of a soul. Wealth and poverty tell us nothing. You may be rich, you may be poor, you may be middle class, you may be somewhere in between. None of that has any bearing on the condition of your soul. I can look at your life and you can be rich or you can be poor. I don't know anything at all about your soul. It tells us nothing. But I'll tell you what, love for God and neighbor tells us something about the condition of a soul. Bible is clear that those who have faith in Christ, who are truly redeemed, have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are people who are transformed from the inside out, and the, that is reflected in a love for God and a love for their neighbor. The Bible is really clear about that. And then finally, just two more quick thoughts. The Bible tells us all we need to know to be saved. You have to understand that from the story that Jesus tells. The Bible tells us everything we need to know to be saved. The world is filled with books, books of all kinds, printed books, digital books, fiction books, nonfiction books, academic books, books for entertainment, long books, short books, helpful books, unhelpful books. But there's only one book that stands above them all. It's God's book. It's a divine book. And there is only one book that can get you into heaven. There is no other book that tells you what you need to know to get there except for the Bible. That's it. And the Bible tells you all you need to know to get there. You and I can read thousands and thousands of books and we can learn a lot of things. But if you neglect this book, everything that you learn from all the rest of those books will be useless when you die. J.C. Ryle says this, there is much talk in these days, this is back in the late 1800s, by the way, much talk in these days about science and useful knowledge, but a knowledge of the Bible is the one knowledge that is needful and eternally useful. A man may get to heaven without money, learning, health, or friends, but without the Bible knowledge, he will never get there at all. A man may have the mightiest of minds and a memory stored with all the strong mind can grasp, and yet, if he does not know the things of the Bible, his soul is damned forever. Woe, woe, woe to the man who dies in ignorance of the Bible. There's only one way to heaven, and there's only one place where you can find out how to get there, and that's in God's Word, the Bible. You reject the Bible, and you have no hope. And that's the final truth, isn't it? People reject the truths of the Bible. For those people, there's no other revelation that's going to convince them. Nothing else. You can debate science with them. You can do apologetics. You can talk about your personal experience and your personal testimony. But when a man or a woman comes to a conclusion that what's contained in the words of this book are not true, and they reject it whole cloth, there's no revelation further that can get them to heaven. There's no other way. There's no other information. There's no other writing. Only the Word of God. 
Listen, let me tell you this something this morning. If you're here and you've been neglecting this book, you're doing it at your own peril. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as the Bible describes him, if you haven't placed your faith in him and abandoned your works and your religious activity and every other means of getting you to heaven, if you haven't done those things as revealed in the Bible, your soul is headed for an eternity apart from Christ, just like that rich man in Hades forever. Do not neglect this book. If you're here and you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, do not neglect this book. It's the key to your eternal life. Well, I don't know where you are this morning in your walk with God. I don't know what you think or what you thought about heaven and hell when you came in here this morning. But here's some reality. Your eternal soul is hanging in the balance. You're going to end up in heaven or hell. It all hinges on faith in Jesus Christ. Do not leave this place this morning without entrusting your life to Jesus as the only way to eternal life. Confess your sin. Turn from it. Abandon your rebellion against God. Bow before him, confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. And he will come into your life. He will forgive you. He will redeem you. He will restore you. And he will grant you eternal life. There is no other way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we take seriously what we read in your word this morning, if we take seriously the story given from the very lips of your son, it should make us shudder. It should make the hair on the back of our neck stand up to consider what is at stake. It should cause us to seriously and passionately reflect on our lives and look at ourselves with a long, hard look in the mirror. If there's anything we need to be sure of today, we need to be sure of where we're going to spend eternity. Whether like this poor man Lazarus, we're going to be at Abraham's side the moment we die, or whether like the rich man, we're going to be in Hades. Or if there's anyone here who hasn't confessed faith in Christ, I pray that right now, you would bring them by your spirit to conviction and draw them to him that they might be saved. We pray these things in Jesus' name.